Hi folks, I'm Nick Calcaterra, and you're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal Podcast. Now that we're back from break and have officially ended our hibernation, we're ready to bring you a ton of interesting tech law podcasts. In today's podcast, our hosts Stella and Tony speak with Nico Placeris, an associate at Fenwick & West. Nico focuses his practice on intellectual property litigation and counseling. The conversation focuses on IP issues and video games. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Nicholas Pilceres is a litigation associate at Fenwick and West in Mountain View. Please tell us about what brought you to the law and specifically your interest in video game law. Ooh, the second question is significantly easier to answer. The first question requires me to go back to, I'm trying to think of like what I put down on my my law school applications. Yeah. I've wanted to be a lawyer for a, a while. I've always enjoyed um, public speaking. I like to joke, even though she hates this, um, I have a younger sister, and she used to be really, really shy when we were little, no longer. Uh, and uh, I remember regularly speaking up on her behalf when we were little, when we were in <laughs> kindergarten together. Um, and my mom and dad always thought that was sweet, and they always encouraged that activity. And so <laughs> speaking on behalf of others begot more speaking on behalf of others, and slowly but surely, it, it developed into a, a career path for me. Video game law, that's an easy one. Video games have been a part of my life ever since I was little. Uh, my dad used to work for a big Japanese company, and I still remember the Christmas that he came back from a business trip in Tokyo with um, my first video game console is a Game Boy Pocket and a Nintendo 64. Oh, wow. And the rest is sort of just history. Um, so I've always really enjoyed gaming sort of in my off time. And I was really fortunate to land at a place. Fenwick does a lot of work in the tech space. But it's a great place because it also encourages people to be passionate about the industries and uh, the different types of content that they really enjoy on a day-to-day basis. And I was lucky enough to find a group of uh, partners and associates at the firm that work in this space. So it allowed me to really merge my personal sort of hobby love of games with the practice of law and the rest is sort of just history. Great. And so what exactly does a video game lawyer do on a daily basis? Yeah, it's it's funny. So there's nothing, unfortunately, there's nothing particularly unique to us that would differentiate us from uh, sort of an IP litigator general. So I'm a litigator, which means I'm the type of lawyer that ends up going to court. And we advise clients on copyright, trademark issues, uh, commercial transactions, privacy issues. Um, and in that respect, I'm not too different from many of my other colleagues in the IP litigation group at Fenwick. What makes us what makes us special is that we are all gamers in one form or another. Even the very successful, very busy busy partners that I work with manage to find time to understand what the business is, what the industry is like, what the products are. And even though I said there was nothing sort of professionally that distinguishes us in terms of what we do, the thing that makes us a video game, the thing that makes a video game lawyer is the lawyer understands the business realities of the video game space. Um, They've played the the games. They know what the user experience is like. They understand what the key mechanics and concepts are as far as user experience and gameplay. And that adds a whole level of very valuable context um, because it means that when we sit down with a client or we get on the phone, And we start talking to them about their privacy policy or um, uh, their marketing campaigns. We can immediately jump into, oh, I totally know that game. I play it all the time. I'm familiar with the characters. And clients love that because they they understand that we are 
not just their attorneys were invested in the products that they sell and the experiences that they they create and that I think is really valuable. Wait, so how do you see your role as a lawyer changing as video games become more mainstream? I'm really excited about it. I mean, one of the things I love is I, and I never realized this until sort of I stepped back uh, when I was in law school sort of looking at what it is that I wanted to end up doing. I was fortunate enough to grow up at the same time that I think the video game industry went through many of its growing pains. Like the video game industry grew sort of along with me. So when I was younger, video games were much more of a sort of obscure, specific sort of hobby that some people had. And now they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. I mean, you look at the people that play, like how many people played Pokemon Go um, or like, and that was just, that wasn't just a game. That was sort of a social like moment in, in recent history. So I think it's really exciting that the game industry has sort of developed and grown the way it has. It means that our our insight, our expertise is going to become, I think, increasingly more valuable because as more and more companies start to realize the value of video games, they're going to try and find ways, and they are, to create experiences for their customers that leverage their intellectual property. And a lot of times they do that through creating some sort of game or mobile app. Um, and our expertise in this field really helps us have an edge in terms of understanding what the trends are and advising clients on what to expect and how to sort of circumnavigate all of those issues. Yeah, and with the prospects of a 60 to $90 billion industry, it's really easy to see why it's not just for nerds and it's not just for kids anymore. For yeah, everyone. totally. I mean, the, the, the statistics are out there. I encourage you to take a look at the, the There are a lot of statistics about sort of the different, the developing changes in the age groups that are playing games, the gender divide between a lot more people. A lot of people suspect or still think that like games are mainly for guys from the age of like 15 to like 35. And if you look at the actual demographics, the picture is very different today. That's changing. Especially with the mobile. Very recently, we had the Xbox One X come out, mm-hmm. and that had also the promise of 4K gaming, and we're seeing them trying to exercise a lot more control over the delivery mechanisms of the games. So, for example, buying things on the Xbox One marketplace, and we also saw that a lot with Steam as well. Mm-hmm. What types of dangers do you see in, in terms of uh, companies trying to take over more of these spaces? Well, I think the... The, the goal here, I think a lot of these game publishers are really dedicated to the user experience that their customers have. They really care deeply about um, the fact that their game is or their experience is fun. It's rewarding uh, for their players. And I think they want to create a space where people are enjoying themselves. So I think the goal there is to make sure that they are facilitating and controlling a space that keeps people safe from hackers, from people that um, bought in their games, um, people that would otherwise maybe ruin the, the user experience. So I think the, the, the intent there is to really try and protect the user experience and make sure that it's a safe one, but also still an enjoyable one. Sure. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the different intellectual property regimes that are involved here. Now, copyright, could you give us a brief description of what's going on in video games in terms of copyright, and especially the idea of 
having separation between a concept of a video game and an expression of a video game. Totally, yeah. So copyrights at a super high level protect um, expression, not ideas. Uh, so the example that we like to use, if you think of something, a, a game like Super Mario Brothers, which everyone recognizes, um, the concept of having a platforming game where you can control a character in 2D that jumps over obstacles, that's not protectable. I can make a platforming game, you can make a platforming game. But the, the expression embodied in a particular game, the idea that you have a main character who is a plumber who wears blue overalls and has a red hat and a mustache, mm -hmm. those things are specific to um, a particular character, a particular um, IP portfolio, and that sort of expression is protectable under copyright. I think what you're seeing a lot of in today's uh, space is with the expansion of the video games industry and the growth that we're seeing, there's a lot more competition to try and create uh, an engaging uh, and fun user experience. And what we're seeing is some people uh, attempt to shortcut the process of coming up with the next big, the next big thing. And there's an uptick in uh, copying that we're seeing, especially in the copyright context, but in other IP contexts as well. Um, in this particular in mobile games? Mobile games is, is probably where it's most common because it, it the mobile infrastructure is such that um, the the technical programming that goes on is very easy to sort of port over if you did want to copy something given how easy it is for users to adopt download the app especially if it's free or it's 99 cents I mean you can very quickly cut into someone's market if you wanted to by creating a sort of knockoff clone game if you're allowed to stay on the market for a couple weeks a month or two I mean you can easily absorb a bunch of customers that would otherwise be going to a different game that originally had copyright protection in it. So um, we're seeing an uptick in that sort of issue where copying is becoming a little bit more prevalent. And that is a space where we care a lot about trying to help clients get through that process and understand sort of what parts of their games are protectable and what are not. Because, you know, we talked very briefly just now about the idea expression dichotomy as it relates to platforming games but it's not always that simple and to a business person or to a lay person you might look at two games side by side and say oh obviously those two things are similar but the legal analysis that goes on the legal analysis that a court would apply might not actually reach the same conclusion because there are some rules about what you can consider and what you can't consider when you do those sorts of comparisons so all of that is to say it's a it's a growing industry, and as a result of that, um, there's a lot of movement in this space, particularly with knockoffs and clones. And it's an important issue to a lot of our clients and a lot of clients in the gaming industry, which we're trying to help them navigate. So how big of an issue are um, international app companies? Issue as far as um, the cloning is concerned, right. or issue just... So, I mean, there's a lot... Uh, there's a lot of movement in the games industry internationally, so there are a lot of great video game publishers that are not U.S. based that do a lot of great work. So in that sense, there's a lot of app development uh, in Europe and Asia, and all of that I think is healthy. That's part of the growth of the industry. Um, game cloning is an issue both here in the U.S. and abroad, and it's an issue you see it in different places depending on sort of what the IP regimes in those places are. So for example, 
Um, there are different countries acknowledge different sort of norms when it mm-hmm. comes to what IP is protected and what isn't. And uh, sometimes that leads to um, game clones that pop up, which you know we have to go through the process of sort of educating them that under U.S. law, copyright protects X, Y, and Z, and they can't do this. And we help our clients navigate those issues and those conversations so that we can avoid the cost and expense of litigation, but if necessary, proceed with whatever legal remedies we need to in order to protect the client's IP. There was a very popular game, The Cookie Clicker, mm-hmm. where you just click on a cookie, and there were several iterations of that, like, with, like the cow clicker, for instance. Mm-hmm. So how do you protect something that seems so simple? That's hard. I actually have not played uh, either the cookie clicker or the cow clicker. <laughs> so I, I, it's hard for me to say sort of in the, the abstract. And that's something that I think applies a lot of times when we get questions like this. It's really important to look at the facts because it's mm-hmm. it's it's very easy. Like I just said, you know, you look at two games side by side and you say, oh, I, I see what happened here. Like I see that one was inspired by the other. But the way the legal analysis shakes out is sometimes counterintuitive and sometimes doesn't end up in the same place as sort of your gut check on a particular comparison. And so without sort of seeing the game side by side, it's hard to to answer that question sort of specifically. But I think the key will always be, at least from a copyright perspective, is to look at what elements are protectable, what elements are not, do a comparison of just the protectable elements, and then have a discussion with the client about whether or not that's something that they want to move forward with. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic, especially when we have a lot simpler choices to make with mobile games where you only have one button and really one experience where you're not walking through a world going on all these adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if Stella had this great idea of, say, for example, a cookie clicking app, and I had an idea of this law student clicking app where you just click the law student and torture him, what exactly would be the implications in terms of copyright infringement? And maybe you could talk about um, the history of bang the card game well so that's i mean it's interesting because there are a lot of things in place so for example um if you guys created these things independent of each other if you're here in berkeley and you're in chicago and you have no contact with each other and yesterday she released the cookie clicker and today you released the the law school torture clicker it's <laughs> uh, a game for professors sure, sure. <laughs> Ooh, that's dark if, if, if these things were independently created of one another, then maybe there isn't a copyright infringement claim. I mean, this is an example of sort of how fact-specific these analyses can be because um, one of the things you look at in copyright infringement is whether or not there was copying. Yeah. And a lot of the times you might see two things and think, those are totally similar, but the reality is one never copied the other. They just both happened to have a similar idea that mm-hmm. happened to take a similar shape. Um and that it is what it is. Now, at some point, that assumption starts to strain reality when you're like, okay, well, the same hundred elements in this game popped up in this game. Yeah. Like, what are the odds that that's a coincidence? Yeah. I mean, that's a different story. But when you're talking about something really simple, th- that calculus changes because it's, it's maybe more likely than you might otherwise think. Um, we talked, you mentioned uh, the Bane case. We talked a little bit about this in a presentation I just gave. Um, this is about a, a card game that uh, was pr- published by a company called Da Vinci, and it's a spaghetti western-based card game where you 
Uh, there are good guys and bad guys, and uh, everyone plays with their role hidden except one person, the sheriff, which is sort of like the main good guy. And the object of the game is to basically figure out through people's actions, sort of infer what everyone's objectives are, what team they're on, and then win based on your team's objective. And there was a lawsuit about whether or not um, that same sort of overall structure, good guys, bad guys, specific characters with specific abilities, um, was protected by copyright. And a recent uh, court decision out in Texas decided that there are certain parts of that game that are not protectable. So good guys versus bad guys, that's a concept. Mm -hmm. That's an idea. We see that in all sorts of things. The court analogize that to uh, a basketball game you know when the players step on the court they know that there are two teams they have differing objectives one is going to win one is not that's not protectable um the court also looked at some of the um the different roles of the games and analogized them to chess pieces you know certain chess pieces move certain ways and not other ways and the court likened that to the rules of the game so rules and ideas are typically not protectable so Without rambling about this too much longer, all of this is to point out that it's really hard to sort of answer questions in a vacuum because it really does depend on what the specific components of the game you're looking at are, what are the pieces, and whether or not they're protectable. Because it, it may not shake out in the same way one case to the next, and it's just an, a matter of understanding um, the industry, understanding the games, the product and understanding the case law where you sort of put those pieces together and make a prediction. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, instead of thinking about competitors, what about the ability to create content within a game as a user? For example, mini games have uh, parts where you can develop different maps to play, um, and there's you know you can make your own characters, um, adding different parts to like their uniform or their facial looks. What exactly are the concerns that individual users of video games should be aware of when they're trying to make something special and potentially sell it? Sure. So this is this is a big deal. This is a current trend in the video game industry. I think um, different video game publishers are starting to realize that this is a real value add that consumers, their, their players really love doing this. It, it adds something. It creates the sort of uh, cohesive community that really keep a lot of these games going for a while. So it's something that game companies, I think, are sensitive to. Um, but there are a number of things that players need to be aware of. The most important thing, and it's funny because we never do this, but the most important thing is to really understand and read the terms of service or the end-user license agreement um, that you're signing up for whenever you play these games, because that is the document that determines, that lays out for you sort of what you own and what you don't own. And it really does depend. I mean, there's a joke, I don't remember what company or how recently, it was in the last couple of years, but there was a gaming company that at some point added in a provision that said, like, you agree to give us your firstborn child <laughs> in exchange. Like, it was one of many things that consumers agreed to in order to play their game. And they sort of chuckled you know, after the fact, because hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of people signed this agreement without realizing sure. that they had... Especially uh, when it's right before you actually get to play the game. Sure, and waiting people just to want to click install. through. Right, they want to get through, they want to get to that game. But it, it is, if you are a content creator and you want to use um, the game as sort of a uh, um, s some sort of source material for the content that you create, you do have to slow down 
um, and actually read the agreement because it will spell out what you own, what you don't own, what your rights are. And again, companies vary, very, they vary um, on what they're willing to grant and what they're not willing to grant. So you have to read that. That's important. The other thing that we talked about that we're seeing come up in, in some cases is um, the right of publicity. So really briefly, the mm-hmm. right of publicity is uh, it's not an intellectual property right. It's more of a privacy right, but it, it has to do with um, the commercial uh, use of one's image, likeness, voice, etc. It varies very much from state to state. Um, so it's important to sort of understand what your state's right of publicity is. But the reason this is important is everyone, including celebrities, um, has a right of publicity. And basically it means that you have to get their permission before you can use them in some sort of commercial way. And what we're seeing in some of the cases that have of work their way up through the courts in the last couple of years is sometimes, for understandable reasons, uh, players get excited and they want to recreate someone in real life in their game. They want to make an athlete look um, and have the same stats as a real-life athlete, athlete, or they want to create an in-game avatar that um, very much resembles you know, a celebrity or someone that mm-hmm. you know, they admire. Um, and that can trigger a right of publicity issue. Um, it might not necessarily be something that the end user has to end up um, dealing with. It's unlikely, although not impossible, mm-hmm. for the, the the person, the celebrity, or whoever it is, to come after the individual and say, "You can't do this. Stop." Yeah. Um, but it's also a real concern for game companies because game companies, I think, there's a trend where they want to create these sort of sandbox environments where. Players can roam free. I mean, video games, let's not lose sight of the fact that video games are creative expression and the people that make these games, the developers, care a lot about creating an art form that lets people have fun and express themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this, on the one hand, this um, this desire to create these open environments where players can do whatever they want. Um, there's a countervailing sort of pressure to make sure that that freedom is appropriately cabined in a way that protects the company in case the players start doing something that might end up upsetting or offending a trademark owner or a you know a celebrity and so that those those are the sort of um concerns that we sort of help walk our clients through because they're real concerns and they don't have easy answers and it's really just a question of understanding what the, the business goals are and what the user base wants measured against sort of what the risks are how do these company goals interact with um, players who want to stream their gameplay, like Let's Play on YouTube and Twitch? Mm-hmm. This is a huge, I mean, this is a live issue. This is this is a big deal right now. We saw it not too long ago uh, with the release of a really popular game and certain restrictions being placed on um, when it was streamed or how it was streamed. Uh, different game pub- The reality is that different game publishers take very different approaches, and that's why... I promise I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be an annoying, boring lawyer. But you have to read the agreement that you're signing because it it's there to tell you what you can and can't do. Um, and it's really important to read because different companies take different approaches. Some companies are much more uh, tolerant and willing to let their, their, their players stream their content. Others... Um, are not they want to make sure that their their content is being used in a way that isn't inappropriate um 
or in a way that is used to make the gameplay experience less enjoyable for their customers. So it's not, I mean, this isn't an issue where there are good guys and bad guys. I think there are, it's really easy for people in the community um, to fill, to fall into that trap uh, as thinking that, you know, there are nice companies and there are mean companies. There are real reasons, many of which center around protecting the customer and Mm -hmm. the player and the experience that motivate this concern. And so, it's 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 a it's a sticky but very timely issue because it's something that is currently sort of working its way through not necessarily the courts but I think game companies to take a step back remember that the the, the game industry the games industry is growing and it's grown it's grown a lot very quickly in the last couple of years and I think there are some amount there's some amount of growing pains I think the industry is trying to understand and learn how to adapt to what the consumers want and the consumers are also trying to figure out sort of how they interact with the the companies and their platforms. And so this is sort of a live, ever-changing, evolving question. And that is what makes this space so exciting and so fun to help advise people through. Yeah, and I think we're also seeing some liberalization of those EULA agreements. Do you see, um, or what, what exactly are those golden nuggets that these publishers need to be thinking about in terms of when they craft these end-user license, these agreements, we don't want to snuff out some creative things. What exactly should publishers be thinking about? Well, uh, there I don't think there's a specific thing. I mean, publishers' main concern, I think, is making sure that their games are secure and enjoyable um, and that the, the content that they've, that they've um, created isn't being used in ways that are inappropriate or somehow harming uh, players, especially, you know, younger audiences, but even, you know adults like we the game companies care a lot about the experience that they have put together and they want to try and protect that so i think that is always a a, a primary concern for them um that being said there are some companies that are uh i think are ahead of the that are more receptive to uh end user i'm sorry um user created content and allowing consumers to to own some piece of that. And they're really, I mean, they're pioneering that. This is, mm-hmm. this is a new trend. It's not necessarily something that you see in other industries. I mean, you don't see a whole lot of context where um, IP created by one publisher, you know, bits and pieces that are allowed to sort of go out mm-hmm. into the world and people are allowed to tinker with them and sort of monetize them. So again, this goes back to the growing pains point. I think there are some companies that are eager and again they care very much about their their player base and they care very much about creating a community that fosters the experience and the enjoyment and the creativity that makes these games so special um some of those companies are willing to take more risks or they're willing to um break apart from what is traditionally understood as the regime where you know anything you make you we own the rights to because you're using our game. Some companies are willing to be a little bit more lenient with that, and they're they're exploring sort of what the complications with that are, what the what the practical consequences of that are. Um, but the reality is that their pl- these companies' player bases are paramount, obviously, to both their business but also their creative vision. And we've seen a lot, especially in the last couple of years, when you look at things like streaming mm-hmm. um, and user created content. You look at something like yep. the Steam Workshop. Um, there's a real demand for 
um, some ability to create content based on these games. And I think that is one of the, um, both one of the challenges, but also one of the beautiful things about the industry growing into the mainstream, because it means that these IPs and these products are being merged into um, a much larger community, which I think is exciting and good for the yeah. publisher because it's it's keeps it's, the game alive. It keeps the game alive. It's it's um, it's good advertising, but at the same time, again, it's all cabined by the fact that the publisher has created something that they want to make sure is safe and enjoyable for people, and there are certain steps that they have to take to make sure that their stuff isn't being abused and misused. Thank you for joining us. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you and follow you online? Oh, God. So this is so sad because I'm one of these archaic beasts that doesn't have a Twitter account. And uh, you can absolutely learn more about my practice and what I do uh, at our, our firm's website. It's www.fenwick.com. You can look me up. Uh, my name is there. Uh, we also have a dedicated uh, video game sort of game content practice page where you can learn more about sort of the work that we do. Um, if listeners are really interested in this sort of stuff, especially the intersection between uh, law and video games, uh, the Video Game Bar Association is an active association that meets several times a year, several panels that sort of present on these issues. I participate in them. We meet with general counsel and in-house counsel and many of our gaming clients. Following them on Facebook and Twitter, they, they have an excellent sort of news update section where they share recent developments, both in pop culture, but also in sort of the legal field on uh, issues facing the game industry. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Stella Chang and Tony Beadle, with production help from me, Nick Calcaterra. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact our editor at beetle at berkeley.edu. That is B-E-D-E-L at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice, may not be current, and is subject to change without notice.